So we're in the middle of this uh, series on the book of Romans, and uh, Romans 6 is an interesting chapter. The section that we're dealing with today talks about uh, how you give your body over to a slave to something. You, you, you've got to serve somebody. There was a song that Bob, Bob Dylan uh, wrote that came out, I think, in the early 80s, and I remember it very well. Uh, he said, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And, and he just sing the song. I, I often wondered if Bob Dylan spoke like he sings at home. I don't know. It's just because it always sounds like there's a lot of angst there, doesn't it? Honey, I'm home. <laughs> I want some macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so the part of Romans 6 that I want to focus on today is specifically the text that, that Pastor John read for us today. Romans 6.23. Uh, it, it's a very, very familiar verse. If you grew up in church, you know the verse, right? And we all memorized our Bibles in the King James Version, didn't we? That's the, how I did when I was a kid. I remember if, if I try to read the 23rd Psalm in the NIV, it just doesn't flow right. I need it in the KJV, you know, with all of the words that we don't use anymore. But do you remember Romans 6:23? For the wages of sin is death. I always thought that was weird because wages is. I, I wanted it to be R or something, but, but I'm sure it's correct because King James knew better English than I do. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through. And we always say Jesus Christ our Lord, but in the Bible it's always Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the verse I want to focus on today. The wages of sin is death. So to understand this verse better, I want to tell you a story or a parable or at least a scenario that I want you to go through with me. And I'm looking, I just want to, Colleen, just really quickly pick on you. Um, you know that uh, a parable is true, but the story may not have happened. But the parable is true because there's the truth behind it, right? I'm going to tell a story, and you're old enough to not worry about this, but there might be some children when, I, when we go through this scenario. It can be a little scary. It's just a story that's illustrating something, okay? So, so go with me on this, and let's see if we can't understand Romans 6.23 a little bit better from this scenario. You are a parent, and your child is the love of your life. They are born in your image. They kind of look like you. And you would do anything for your child. Every morning when you wake up, your child is your very first thought. Can't wait to get to them so that I can spend the day with them and, and be with them. And every night when you go to bed, you can't wait to get done sleeping so you can wake up in the morning and get to your kid. You love your child. You love them more than you love yourself. You love them more than you love your own life. As they've grown up, you have taught your child about life and love and how to survive in the world. And necessarily along the way, you've laid down some rules for them. 
You share these rules with them to keep them safe and to preserve the relationship that you have with them. We've all done that, right? Don't touch that because it's hot. You're not laying down an arbitrary rule just to be a rule maker. You're trying to protect them. Don't touch that because it's hot. My son had a bad habit when he was just a little toddler of uh, um, he'd go and he'd go into the bathroom and splash around in the water, if you know what I mean. Um, So we had to put locks on the toilet. Don't do that because that water can make you sick. We make rules to protect our children. And you have done that with your child. Again, the rules aren't arbitrary. They all serve a purpose to protect your child so that nothing can steal their joy. One of your rules is that your child is not to go anywhere with a stranger. If you're in a store and a stranger engages them in conversation, they're to immediately find you so that you can keep them safe just in case the stranger isn't trustworthy. It's a rule that every parent has for their child. Stranger danger, right? Don't, don't talk to strangers. Don't go with the stranger. So in order to enforce this rule, because it's a pretty important one, you've acted out scenarios with your child to show them why allowing a stranger to gain their trust is dangerous. You've role-played and explained the, the rule that, that, that it, it's, it's your task as a parent to keep them safe. So you role-play and say, okay, what happens if, as a stranger, I come up and say, hey, do you, do you want some candy? Or, hey, you should come over here with me. How do you react? You've role-played it all out, and your child understands. Even though they're only six years old, they know about the rule about strangers, and they know that it's, it's for their safety. They get it at six years old, and they've agreed. I will keep this rule. And then, one day you are at a large department store shopping and your child, when you turn around, wanders from your side. They know where the toy aisle is. Every child knows where the toy aisle is. They wander from your side And they find themselves in the toy aisle and they're dreaming about that toy that's right there on the shelf. The latest version of something that they've seen advertised on TV. Their friends have it and they really, really want that toy. It's a great toy. When I was a kid, I had a few toys that did that for me. They came out and I really wanted that toy. And then they hear a voice. It's a stranger speaking. Hey, do you like those toys? Yes, says your innocent child. I do too. I think those toys are really, really fun. In fact, I like them so much that I have a whole bunch of them that I purchased and they're all in my car. And I bought them because I like to give those toys to little boys and girls so that they can have as much fun as I have. Would would you like one of these toys for free? I'll give you one. I'll give you one if you come out to my car and get it. Your child stops to think for a moment. Your child knows the rule. 
What's the rule? Don't talk to strangers. Don't go with the stranger. But this one doesn't seem like a stranger. In fact, the stranger tells your child that they know you, the parent, that they're from your neighborhood, and, and it's okay with your mom or dad. It's, you know, they, you, you, they've talked to you. They seem so friendly, nice, and there's a free toy. W would you like a free toy? Yes, says your child. Follow me and I'll give you one. It's just right out the door in my car. It just takes a few moments. Your child has left your side and in what seems like a blink of an eye, they're gone. You search the store, you have a panicky feel and in the, just in your throat and in your heart. You have their name called over the intercom. They're gone. Finally, the store manager takes you in the back room and, and you look at the video surveillance. There's your six-year-old child. The one who knows the rule. The one who said, I will, I will obey that rule. There they are, walking out of the store with a stranger. What's your reaction? As a parent, what's your reaction? How do you feel right now if you're the parent of this child? How do you feel? Well, I'm guessing your reaction is not going to be, my child broke a rule, and now they need to be punished. When I find them and get them back home, boy, they're going to get the biggest spanking they've ever had, and I'm going I'm to put them on restriction, and boy, they're not going to be able to sit down for months. I'm, I'm guessing that's not going to be your reaction if you're the parent in this scenario. No. I'm guessing that, in fact, this thought would never even pass your mind. You would never once think, ha, huh, they broke my rule and now they deserve punishment. I'm guessing that that's not going to occur to you. No. Your whole world would come crashing down, wouldn't it? The pain you'd feel in your heart would be indescribable. The helplessness. Your only thought would be to get your child back home safely as soon as you possibly can. You want them back in your care so that they can be back in relationship with you so that you can protect them and nurture them. You want to repair the hurt and you want to heal whatever damage this kidnapper has caused. You'd give anything, anything, to get your child back, back home where they belong, right? Wouldn't that be how you'd feel as a parent? I'll give anything, I'll do anything. If this is what we would do for our children, if this is what we'd feel toward our kidnapped child, why would we project anything less than this onto the God that we say we serve? Shouldn't God, 
Shouldn't God be at the very least, at the very least, a better version than ourselves? Right? Shouldn't he at least be better than me? When we read the passage in Romans, the wages of sin is death, we think, yep, that's right. When we sin, more likely we think, when they sin, <laughs> God is going to have to punish them. Well, they knew the rules. They sinned. Now God's got to punish them. And if we keep on sinning, oh, he's going to have to put us to death. God's, God's going to have to kill us. That's what the Bible says. Wages of sin is death. See, when we do this, when we have this kind of thinking, when we have these thoughts, it does two things that harm us in a deep spiritual way. The first thing is it warps our perception of who God the Father really is. When we project the wages of sin as death onto uh, others and, and to, uh, to ourselves saying, if we sin, God is going to harm us, we project something onto God that is unhealthy for us and it's not very good for him either. And the second thing it does is it, it lessens our understanding of how horrible sin really is. When we see God as the person who harms us when we sin, we don't see sin as the thing that harms us and damages us. We see God as the one who will harm us and damage us because we've disobeyed him. When we view God as the punisher, we tend to serve him out of fear. When we view God like this, we, we tend to project this kind of fear-based relationship into our theology and into our human relationships. And that can be brutal. We become legalistic, and we start to expect things of others that are unrealistic. And we become judgmental and critical of how others do things, because after all, if they keep, keep making these kinds of mistakes, if they keep sinning, God will notice, and he will punish them for their sins. You better get right with God to avoid punishment. You better join the church to avoid hell. Imagine if this were the case for a married couple. What if the wife only stayed with her husband because she was afraid to leave him because of what he'd do to her if she did leave him? How warped would that be? What if somebody bent the knee to ask for somebody's hand in marriage and said, boy, I love you so much and I really want to be married to you and if you say no, I'm going to have to hurt you. How warped would that be? What if your children never broke a rule in your household because of how, they, how afraid they are of you and what you'd do to them if they did? Can you imagine how they'd act when they finally got old enough to leave the house? <laughs> Woohoo! To serve God because we are afraid of what he'll do to you if you don't serve him misrepresents God and his character. God doesn't want a bunch of children that are afraid of him. He wants a bunch of children that adore him and trust him and love him and want to run into his arms. Children that want to be at home with him. He also wants his children to know 
that it's sin that they should fear because sin is the punisher. Sin is the one that has wages that lead to death. Sin is the separator and the destroyer of relationships. Sin is the enemy to be afraid of, not God, not the Father. Over and over and over again, God shows up in Scripture. And every time God shows up, people fall down on the ground and they shake and they're in terror and they're afraid. And every single time, the heavenly visitor says, don't be afraid. Every single time. Back to our scenario. It wasn't the parent in the store who was to be feared. Did the child have any reason to fear the parent? No. Was it a bad rule? Should they have been afraid of the rule? Was it just a a bad rule that was made? No. Paul makes these arguments in the book of Romans when it comes to the law. The rules aren't bad. It's not God that's bad. It's sin that's bad. It's the kidnapper that's the enemy. It's the kidnapper that should be feared. And the kidnapper is sin. The Bible describes and defines sin in a few different ways. And in James 4.17, this is a really interesting one. It says, if you know that you're supposed to do something good, and you go, eh, I don't want to do that good thing. James 4 says, that's sin. That's an interesting definition because usually we think sin is, is something that, that you should avoid um, doing because it's a bad thing. But in this case, if there's a good thing you're supposed to do and you decide, no, I don't want to do that good thing. I'd rather just ignore it. The Bible calls that sin. In Romans 14, it says, anything we do outside of our faith relationship with Jesus is sin. Anything you do outside of faith is a sinful act. It could be growing to the grocery store or mowing your lawn. If it's not within the confines of your relationship with Jesus, the Bible describes that as sin. And then in 1 John 3, it says that sin is lawlessness. And, and this is my favorite, uh, I don't, not my favorite thing to be lawless, but, but this is my, I like this definition the best. Sin is lawlessness. When you decide... I don't need you, I don't need your rules, I don't need your Holy Spirit guiding me in my life. I want to be a law unto myself. I'm going to be a lawless person. That's a a great definition of, of what sin is. Now these are all proper biblical definitions that you can dig around in Scripture and find. But hearing words to describe something, sometimes it doesn't do it for me. I mean, Leroy, if if you went to the Grand Canyon and came back and said, wow, Mark, I want to describe the Grand Canyon to you. It's It's a huge hole in the ground, and there's some colors sometimes. I would say, oh, cool. But if I went to the Grand Canyon and I saw it, wow. And then I'd go try to describe it to somebody, and they'd go, oh, cool. Until they went and saw it, right? Words are words. And if you're going to read words to describe what sin is and what it does, I think the best place to look is probably 
in the Gospels at the last hours of Jesus' life. If you want to see how ugly sin really is, if you want to see the enemy that sin truly is, watch what it did to God. It bound him up. It ran up and and grabbed his beard and yanked it out. It, it, It blindfolded him and hit him over the head with a stick and said, prophesy, who hit you? Sin did this. It bound him up to a post and it whipped him to within an inch of his life. Sin put a thorny crown crown on him and, and caused his head to bleed. Sin nailed him to the tree and hung him up there, naked for the world to see, no dignity at all. Sin crushed Jesus and it killed him. That's what sin does. It separates, it destroys. The wages of sin is death. But even then when we read about the cross, we we get a good sense of what the wages of sin are, but it's not until we experience sin in our own lives that we really get a true picture of how ugly it is. The wages of sin are all around us. I mean, you can't walk outside in the morning in Angwin right now without breathing in the wages of sin. You know, the the destructive fires all over the place. That's not God's doing. Relatives that are ill. I have a father-in-law right now that's, that's not doing very well. In fact, Wendy got some news yesterday and she had to drive up to Canada real fast to help them get some things in order. We know what sin looks like, don't we? We know the wages of it. We feel the brunt of it. And then there's not just the collateral damage of sin like fires and sickness, but there's there's the times in our own life when we decide to rebel. When we step outside of the will of God and we go our own way and sin comes around and bites us, And it destroys relationships, it destroys families. And it comes in all kinds of forms, doesn't it? Whether it's some sort of a substance abuse or an addiction of some kind or or a bad temper or violence or whenever we choose to step outside of God's will, we know what sin feels like. Sickness, war, broken relationships, heartache, separation, the things that weigh heavy on every human being are all the wages of sin. These things are not God's judgment or punishment. They aren't his doing. They are the wages of sin, and all of us have felt them keenly. So back to our scenario You've realized that the kidnapper has done his work. You're not angry with your child. In fact, you love them now more than ever, more than you ever have. You want to be with them now more than ever. You want to hold them more than ever. You'll do anything to get them back. Anything. And then the phone rings. It's the kidnapper. The kidnapper makes his demands. And the 
the, the demands are brutal. They will exchange your only child for a family member. And you love this family member. Family member's an adult. And you sit down and you agonize over the decision, can we do this? It's our kid. We've got to do it. I'll give myself up. But what will the kidnapper do to you? I don't know. It's not going to be pretty. In the end, in the end, the most important thing to everyone in the family is to get this six-year-old innocent child back into the house, back into the home, back into the arms of the father. So the trade is made. You get your child back at great, great expense. And your child is now saved from the future hurt and pain that you that, 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 was headed, that they were headed for, and, and, and now they're embraced into the family. They're back home, and, and there's a loss, but, but there's a gain, and this child is there, and there is reunion, and there is a party, and there's, there's, there's gifts, and there's love, and the child grows up in your family. And as that child grows up in your family, the memory of the kidnapper is still fresh in your mind. The memory of the price is still fresh in your mind. And then when they become a teenager, you're sitting at breakfast and the unthinkable happens. Your 14-year-old child looks at you and says, Dad, I don't want to live with you anymore. I want out. But, but where will you go? What, what will you do? Dad, I love you and everything, but I'm going to move out, and I've decided that rather than live with you, I want to go back and live with the kidnapper. I want to go back and live with the person that stole me from you. I want to go back and live with the person that you gave up our family member for. You try to talk them out of it. You try and speak rationally. You try and warn them that the kidnapper is only there to destroy. Life at home is way better than life with the kidnapper. Can't they see this? They don't listen. They pack their bags and they move out to go and live with the one that took them in the first place. The one that you paid a healthy ransom to. Now at this point, as your child walks out the door... As their parent, do you follow them and say, if you leave this house and move in with that kidnapper, I'm going to have to kill you. Don't make me kill you. You better come back.
I don't think you do that. You do your best to woo them back. You, you try to convince them that life with the kidnapper is just choosing death. But life at home with you is way better than, than life that the kidnapper has to offer them. But you don't threaten to take their life to get them back. You offer them a better life. If they walk out and they keep on going, it's going to break your heart. But you're not tempted to hunt them down and harm them because of their choice. The harm will come, but it won't come from you. You just keep wooing them and praying for them, and you just keep loving them, and you just keep inviting them to come home because you know at some point they're going to understand the sting of death, and you just pray to God that it's not too late, that it hasn't ensnared them so thoroughly that they can't come home. You're going to continue to fight for them, but not by threatening them with harm, but by offering them grace. Hopefully one day they'll realize how empty the kidnapper is. Hopefully one day they'll see that this is all leading to death. This is all leading to a bad, bad place. And when they do, just like the, the young man in the far country in the parable in Luke 15, when they do realize it, when they come to their senses, they're going to come back. This is what your great hope is. And when they do, you're not going to meet them at the door and you're not going to say, okay, just wait there, buddy. I've got a list for you. You can only come back if oh no, you're going to throw open that door and you're going to rush into their arms and you're going to just embrace them and say, welcome home, welcome home. Oh, I got your room all ready for you. I'm going to kill the fatted soybean and make a nice veggie pot for you. And I'm going to, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. I've missed you, I love you. Welcome home. See, this is the hope of the Father. The Father's offer is eternal life, full life, abundant life, grace-filled life. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the invitation of the Father, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The voice of the Father is not spewing out death threats to his children. He isn't threatening punishment or retaliation. The voice of the Father warning us that the kidnapper is dangerous and will bring about separation and misery and death. This is, the voice of the Father is wooing us and warning us. The Father is calling his children home. He's calling us back from the far country. He's calling us away from the kidnapper. He's calling us home where we belong. The wages of sin is death. 100% of the time. But the gift of the Father is eternal life. 100% of the time. We don't belong to the kidnapper. 
We belong to the Father. Home with the Father. That's where we belong. Amen.